Hi, I'm Clement Liu, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. In the previous episode of Just Sustainability, we listened to the first part of the conversation that I had with Emily Breyer. We learned about how Emily approaches her role as a teacher. In this episode, Emily and I shift our focus. While we started a conversation talking about pedagogy, we finished it talking about scholarship and creative work, particularly in the context of sharing the stories of Appalachia and Appalachians. I am a fellow food nerd, and I always love talking about kind of food and identity and place, which I think is something that you also like to do. And so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing, right? We've talked a lot about your teaching, but like behind or beside that teaching is also you're a writer. Uh, and so I, I want to ask you to introduce kind of the some of the stuff you write about, and particularly like thinking about Appalachia and thinking about gender and thinking about uh, orientation and sexuality and food. Yeah, so I definitely identify as a writer, um, and I discovered I was Appalachian when I went to college. Uh, So I grew up in southwestern Virginia, and I went to Virginia Tech for my undergrad. And I, you know, all all of the sides of my family and my many, many cousins and (laughs) my big sprawling family all live um, in one county in southwestern Virginia. And sure. You know, I grew up on land that my great grandfather had bought after World War II. And, you know, I'm very rooted in this place. And as I started exploring writing about Appalachia in a creative context, so in poetry and nonfiction, um, and engaging more with Appalachian studies at Virginia Tech. So, Mm -hmm. working with Emily Satterwhite at Virginia Tech, who's doing great work in, in Appalachian studies and advocacy. I started to realize the the things that um, impacted me and impacted my family were part of sort of a greater studyable, um, studied history of Appalachia in America uh-huh. and uh, the pressures I felt to either perform my Appalachian identity in a way that was palatable to others right. or hide it in a way that made everyone comfortable. Um, we're, we're part of, you know, a greater history of the region. Mm-hmm. And I think I had a, a sort of unusual experience as a student in which I was essentially given a full ride in undergrad um, based mm-hmm. on being a poet and being specifically an Appalachian rural first generation college student. Okay. And so I was explicitly told by a faculty editor of a on-campus magazine that I needed to up the Appalachian-ness in my work. Okay. They wanted more ain'ts and y'alls and kudzu and pawpaws and meemaws and, you know, whatever else. And the thing is like, I don't, I don't have a meemaw, you know, like I, Um, and so it was, it was a very inauthentic sort of performance I was doing for a while because I was being interviewed by on-campus magazines about what it meant to be an Appalachian poet. And I, I have a lot of of feelings about that, um, that I'm still working through, but, uh, upon leaving the region, um, and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for a couple of years, I was able for the first time to figure out what it meant to me to be Appalachian. Um, 
and and that's something I'm still sort of working working through. Um, but specifically related to food, I you know have a deep deep affinity for my dad's garden. Okay, um, and I worked you know as as a kid, I I was in charge of sort of weeding the garden and helping my dad, and you know it was this thing that we we're proud of and that we ate a lot of food out of and yeah. um, thinking about my great grandfather's Y2K cellar filled with <laughs> canned food. Um, he was very prepared and just sorts of the, the foods that my great grandmother would make um, and all of my aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. It, it brings me back to a place of um, home mm-hmm. and in my academic writing about food um i i sort of think about that as well hmm. um you said something i want to ask you a little bit about so like um so you told the story about like kind of like being forced to perform Appalachianness and like right how sort of inauthentic that was and then like having to take time to explore what being Appalachian meant to you actually could you say a little bit more about this because it's an interesting thing right like i do think i mean i think it's an interesting sort of phenomenon we have like when uh Right, like particularly in higher ed, where like the ways we're trying to be like inclusive is by inviting people to like act out stereotypes, and then experiencing that, and then thinking through like identity and like what does it mean to be authentically who you are. So I'm curious about like your sort of experience with that. Yeah, like I I felt very much, and I also you know I was a young person, and I think that Mm -hmm. exploring your identity is just a very normal part of of being 20 years old. Sure. Um, but I, yeah, I felt pressured to have a certain narrative about my family, which was not very authentic. So mm. I'm not close. I was never close with my grandparents and for a lot of, you know, complicated family reasons that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people I think could relate to. Um, but Appalachian literature almost overwhelmingly has like the great Meemaw narrative of your grandmother has to be the person you go to who's you know plump and has an apron on and teaches you how to string beans or whatever right, it is. Right, right. And, and so there's this like the archetype of the Appalachian person um, and the Appalachian family really did not square with my experience of you know, growing up in a really rural area and listening to boys like girls and 303 and Green Day and wearing, <laughs> you know, flared Hollister distressed jeans and Converse and, right. you know, growing up in America in the early 2000s and and sort of just being watching Disney Channel and right. and thinking through being part of, of that culture. And so uh, as I was able to remove myself from some of the expectations of Appalachian, like TM sort of narratives. I think what being Appalachian meant to me became much more about understanding my dad and my great uncles and my cousins who work in factories and what that sort of extractive capitalism has done to the culture of small towns. Yeah. Um, like this globalized sort of thing. And, you know, thinking about how um, the lack of resources for people who have children or childcare creates a economy of 
sort of unpaid maternal labor yeah. or, you know, why do you stick around this place? Well, it's because my aunt watches my kids while I work. And it's much more related to this greater understanding of labor and capital and yeah. investment and disinvestment of places, treating people like they're disposable, treating yeah. places like they're disposable. Um, alongside, you know, I, I love Appalachian food um, and I love our, <laughs> I, I love our culture of, um, you know, I was recently talking to my mother-in-law um, who is from Wilmington and, and still lives there mm-hmm. about me leaving my hometown. And, and something that had to happen is I had to reimagine what help looked like and what um, paying for help looked like. So for instance, I had to get triple A sure. because you know, I don't know how many of my cousins have a tow truck, but it's several. And so <laughs> you would just call them if you get a flat, you know, like there's sure. always, you would borrow, um, you know, a, a ditch witch to, to dig up something. You would have family members or friends who have any tool you need, any, you know, you don't rent a U-Haul, you have your friends help you move. And so right. reimagining myself outside of this community it really did take me understanding sort of this commerce of, of help yeah. in a way that I hadn't before, because to me that that's all stuff that family did. Listening to Emily talk about her experience being asked to perform Appalachianist in essentialized and caricatured ways. Let me remark that I believe there needs to be more and better discourse about the richness of the Appalachian experience. In response, Emily told me about the growing field of Appalachian studies we also spoke about a range of related topics, such as the tensions that arise among marginalized folks trying to discuss their identities, identifying who is in a position to tell the stories about a given place, and work about the intersection of being Appalachian and queer. Here's that conversation. And, you know, the I'm, I'm involved with the Appalachian Studies Association, and I have been for, for several years, and there are definitely folks who are doing this work, like there was uh, the book Appalachian Reckoning that came out, which was in response to Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Um, and I, I wrote about and have presented about um, sort of queer women in Appalachia who are writing. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, authors like Eileen Espinoza and Stacey Jane Grover who are writing queer Appalachian nonfiction. And I, I think a lot of people are, are doing the work, but a lot of the times we're in conflict with one another as to how we think. Yeah. Um, it should be talked about. And so I think that, which is good. I think that healthy dialogue is good, but it still feels, you know, it's still a contentious space as to how to balance all of these narratives, which are all true and are all real to our experiences and identities, mm-hmm. even though they are often in conflict with one another. I, I'm not Appalachian, but I am married to an Appalachian. And if there's one thing I have found, right, is Appalachia is a really complicated sort of place where, uh, Appalachians aren't homogenous in any way. And I, I feel like if and if any group of people gets angry at one another about like what it means to be part of members of that group, it's Appalachians. Yeah. <laughs> we love uh, to argue. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and especially the the different you know, it's it's a gigantic region. It's mm-hmm. it has ill-defined borders that are very political. Mm-hmm. Um and there are different economies in different different places of it. So I grew up in an area that didn't have coal, mm-hmm. um, that was, you know, largely industrial and um 
was the the industry was largely factory work. And, you know, someone from Western Pennsylvania and someone from North Georgia mm-hmm. are in very different geographic and political locations. And so thinking about it as a region as a whole, or even as, you know, every now and then some sort of clickbait map will go around of like mm-hmm. the various sub regions of Appalachia and everyone fights about that for a couple of days. Um, and it's just thinking about like, what is that for and what are, what are we doing? And I think a lot of it is trying to establish our identity and, and trying to defend the experiences that we have um, in both in the region. And when we come in contact with folks and institutions outside of the region. Yeah. Well, and I think it's just the right, in general, Appalachia is hard to travel around in. I think until the advent of the modern highway system, five miles is a real f- long distance in Appalachia because there's a lot of hills. There's a lot of streams. It's not easy to get from one place to the next, right? That I think leads to like fracturing of of the communities of populations, which I think uh, allows for, uh, I don't know, the development of a lot of difference and diversity within like very close to each other. Yeah. And I see a lot of um, overlap sort of in Appalachian discourse and like queer like LGBTQ plus discourse in that I think that, um, well, first of all, there's a big conversation about what it means to be queer in Appalachia sure, um, and, and queerness in Appalachia and the South in general. But I also see a, a want to be recognized for okay. the experience that you have. And so, you know, I think that for some folks, for someone to say that they have a different experience and have the same identity feels sort of threatening sure. because the, my experience being different is um, it can feel like it, it's taking away from a greater narrative. Right. And, you know, I think that that's a, a normal reaction. And I think that um, we're really bad at nuance, especially online. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> to see someone, um, have an experience of being Appalachian or or being queer that doesn't align with yours. and doesn't take into account your reality. It it does feel sort of bristly. You know, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that someone could listen to to me talking about my, my family or my um, economic circumstance sort of growing up where we were lower middle or lower class, but also didn't experience the sort of hardship, um, you know, that, that other folks did or, you know, having a family system that was at the same time extremely supportive and close and also sort of estranged, you know, mm-hmm. this, these are all the nuances of a life that I think someone could say, well, that that doesn't represent Appalachia and it, and it mm-hmm. doesn't. My my experience with being a queer person doesn't represent queerness, mm-hmm. um, but it, it it is an experience. And so if we're going to write scholarship or creative work about these identities, just knowing that there's enough internet space for us all, um, there are enough, enough academic articles and uh, literary journals for us all to, to sort of explore these things. I think it's an important thing to remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not surprising that folks have that response, right? <coughs> oh, excuse me. I mean, right. Like, I think you, when you belong to a population that's historically been marginalized and where like your narratives have been sort of ignored when someone is being attended to, that's, you know, arguably, offering your narrative and it's not your narrative uh right i I can see that being threatening right it's another sort of erasure yeah 
Yeah. And another sort of, you know, um, I think because, how do I put this? So I live in Asheville now. Um, before I lived here, I lived in the Charlotte area and I lived in Louisville. So I'm, I'm back in Appalachia now, big fan. Um, very happy to be back in the mountains. And um, I went to an event that was um, about being an artist in Appalachia, being an Appalachian artist okay. here in Asheville. And I, I went to this event. I was very excited. And all five of the people there had moved to Asheville from outside of Appalachia in the last four years mm-hmm. and had no sort of ties to the region. Just were like, that seems like a cool place to live and moved here. And now they're on a panel mm-hmm. um, about being an artist in Appalachia. And when, when stuff like that happens, I too get a little uh, persnickety mm-hmm. about um, identity and resources. And so I do think that when there are grants or, you know, speaking opportunities or um, edited collections or, you know, visiting professorships or, or whatever else, when there is a real, monetary or cultural currency mm-hmm. that is set aside for a marginalized group. And then you see someone who's from New Jersey, who's been here 18 months being like, well, that's for me. Yeah. 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 Um, there, there, there is some, sometimes when I'm like, is it for you? Um, go ahead. Oh no, no. I was going to say the funny thing is, um, uh, I think that is actually kind of a funny uh, funnily, like kind of common Appalachian story, right? So, like, I was just, when you were talking earlier about like how Appalachia is different, and you were talking about like your experience of Appalachia, like right, listening to '90s music. I was thought about like where my spouse is from, and like uh, how uh, my experience of there is that it's a whole bunch of artists from upstate New York who have <laughs> settled in there and have like these art communes, so, yeah. which is not, I don't think aligns with how most people would think of like. Right, because my spouse is from Braxton County, West Virginia, which is like right down, like right smack dab in the middle of like West Virginia, in the, sort of the most mountainy, most sort of out of the way sort of place. And it really is like you know fancy coffee shops and like uh, hippies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's. I think that um, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, because I go, I, I went to this thing, and yeah. and I was like, oh, it, it'll be great to be among people who have similar backgrounds and experiences as me as, you know, a writer who comes out of Appalachia. And and instead what I left with was, you know, Oh, this isn't really a space for, for me and my experience. Right. And that's okay. Not everything has to be for me, but there's only so many times that that can happen before you start to, to feel a little disheartened. um, Just sort of at the, the, discourses that are you know i i'm i'm really tired of people who are you know move to to a city or, or to an area of appalachia and then all they do is talk crap about uh the people who live just outside that city right and it's like well okay i don't i'm not sure what that serves uh i'm gonna ask sort of a, like a random tangential question that touches back to something you said that uh, I don't think we explore enough and I'd like to explore more. You mentioned something about like 
exploring more about what it means to be queer in Appalachian. And like, there's a literature developing about that. I'm not familiar with that literature, but I'm curious. So I wanted to ask you about that. What, is, what are some of the things that people are writing about, about being like queer in Appalachian? Oh, yeah. So in the last, I would say five years, there has been a really big explosion in thinking about queerness in Appalachia. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually on the advisory board for a um, book series out of the University Press of Kentucky, which is uh, publishing books on what it means to be queer, Black, and Indigenous in Appalachia. Okay. Um, so we have some great books coming down the pipe. Um, I think that the first books in that series are being published this coming spring. Um, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, Travis Roundtree is doing a lot of work at Western Carolina about, um, what it means to be queer in Western North Carolina. I know that there have been a couple edited collections, um, y'all means all. And then another one, um, about queerness in Appalachia and, you know, there are artists, uh, both from Appalachia and within the region who are, Exploring what this means. So Savannah Sipple, um, Eileen Espinosa, Stacey Grover, who I mentioned earlier, um, Nicole Brown, and Jessica Jacobs. So there's a longstanding sort of ex- exploration of sexuality, you know, Silas House, Carter Sickles, all these people, mm-hmm. uh, sexuality in Appalachia and, and what queerness means. Um, going back decades, Dorothy Allison, of course, being the original back in the 80s um, and still publishing today. But I think in the last five to 10 years, there has been more of an academic exploration of, of queerness in Appalachia and more mm-hmm. publishing on um, not only sort of the the typical sociology studies of, you know, how many people are queer, how do people feel about it, you know, yeah. what are sort of health markers and stuff like that, but a a more theoretical framework of what is queerness in Appalachia and Hmm. how can we conceptualize it as part of a greater, you know, regional and national narrative of identity and and sexuality and gender. Yeah. Um, And and I'm excited for it, you know, as as someone who is queer in Appalachian and is is back in the region and publishing, I think it's a a conversation folks have been having. And so I know that the, uh, Journal of Appalachian Studies just a couple months ago published a special edition of Queerness in Appalachia. So it's it's really having a, its moment, and I hope that it's a sustained interest and in a sustained area of study because there's a lot here. Yeah, that is that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised I've never actually seen it because uh, I mean, my spouse uh, their their dissertation research is on like queerness in rural spaces, and like I become kind of familiar with the the literature about queerness in rural spaces and like sort of the differences about like development for uh, queer students in rural spaces relative to like urban spaces where it seems like most of the research is done. But I hadn't actually seen the, that the research specifically on like Appalachia as a region. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely happening. I think that something that's difficult in Appalachian studies is that, it feels like a very, it's a very small sort of subfield, um, and very few people actually have their academic home in Appalachian studies. So, you know, folks will be in English or history or anthropology, and and will also be doing work that ends up, um, you know, being part of Appalachian studies. And so, I think that 
we need to do as as an organization, the Appalachian Studies Association, and just as people who are doing work within the space, I think that it's always, um, I think it would behoove us to sort of reach out to folks who are doing work uh, within and about the region and be like, hey, did you know that that's Appalachian Studies? Like, yeah. did you <laughs> did you know that you could, you know, connect with folks who are interdisciplinary doing work in the region? Um, and it, it's a really, it's a great space. But I also, um it's it's an interesting space. I, you know, I've been involved for a number of years and um, have found great colleagues and great researchers and great friends in the the work that folks are doing. Even if it doesn't relate to, you know, my research necessarily, it helps me have a better mm-hmm. understanding of, of the region and of um, sort of the discourse around it. No, and, and I think it's actually uh, an area that I think uh, kind of broadly requires a little more attention because I think right when I think about like because I come from the like sort of more of the world of, like sustainability studies and right and thinking about like how sustainability studies often sees itself as sort of like place based but I don't think I don't know many people who think much about Appalachian when they're thinking about sustainability which I think is a problem given that so many of our sort of sustainability problems are so sort of salient in Appalachia right like mm-hmm. right there's environmental things but there's also like right the economic and like social cultural sustainability i think is right are are things that are deeply important given that it's a a unique cultural region which really does seem under threat right particularly like when we're talking about things like you know like grants for artists and it's going to folks from new jersey who's been there for eight yeah. months <laughs> right exactly and i think that um you know there's there there are a lot of discussions about the economics of of appalachia of which i'm not an expert but you know i I think that an investment in the people of Appalachia and what would be a sustainable future in a way that is is truly sustainable is so important because I see a lot of initiatives, you know, get big news releases and you scroll down to about the seventh paragraph and it's, oh, this will add 12 jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, 12 whole jobs. You know, like yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's a, a lot of things are touted as sort of the silver bullet for quote unquote, saving Appalachia. And it's not the sort of basic things, um, you know, clean water, access to sewer systems, access to sustainable and affordable housing, childcare, investment in schools, like all of these things that are so basic and necessary that I just don't think that like a Bitcoin farm is going to solve. No. Well, yeah. And I think particularly when you think about like, Right, Appalachian culture and history, and like its ties to the land. Um, yeah, I, I think when we're not being kind of thoughtful about development in Appalachia, uh, not being thoughtful about the the preservation of culture and heritage. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot there. I think that uh, we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about in general. I mean, and we, uh, right, as a broader society in the United States. And that brings us to the end of the topics that I want to ask Emily about. As always, I like to end the conversations featured in Just Sustainability by turning the reins over to my interlocutor. Here's where Emily took the discussion. I feel like a lot of my work is just the same thing over and over. Sure. But that I don't think other people see it that way. And so um, 
So I'm I'm married to a therapist. My spouse is a therapist. Okay. And um one of my my greatest mentors and one of my best friends is is someone who has uh been sober for I think like 35 years now. Um and sort of works AA. And you know, both being married to a mental health professional and one of my best friends being someone who works AA mm. um means that I I have this deep sense that my work is just confronting and rectifying and working through the same issues and the same challenges over and over again, Mm -hmm. which is sort of, you know, the work of of therapy and and also the, my understanding of the work of AA, Mm -hmm. which is that there's a thing, there's, you know, a challenge, there's an experience and we're reacting to it over and over again. So, you know, a, a really basic example of this is if you grew up in, in a household where there was, um, you know, yelling mm-hmm. and you reacted to that as a child, then every time you're activated as an adult, um, you're reacting to someone yelling at you as a child over and over again. And mm-hmm. the goal is that you you start to deal with that and react differently. Um And so I feel that my work over and over again is just how can I create space for contentment and joy and acceptance and holding nuance and understanding and some sort of rich, varied experience Mm -hmm. for myself and others over and over again. And that's what I've been trying to do since I think I was a child. I started writing poetry when I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I started writing stories when I was six. I have always tried to hold the space. And when I look at, you know, the sort of academic writing that I've done, um, a lot of it is not, trying to have answers mm-hmm. but rather trying to show that there are questions that people are having so you know the work i did on on women's bodies and food in appalachia mm-hmm. it really is me showing like look at how queer women and women in general are discussing and using food as a metaphor for the body and this place-based identity mm-hmm isn't that interesting? Like that's my thesis is this is cool and neat and we should notice, you know, like I, you know, my argument is that they're doing it, but my argument is also like, what an, what an amazing way to be in the world with your art. Like what a, what an incredible way to create that space. And with my teaching, you know, I think that so much of what I feel is being a good teacher is trying to understand that I, don't know everything about my mm. students, about what they need, about what they want, about what they're bringing into the classroom, what they're bringing into my office hours, and just being open to being surprised and to not knowing and to never knowing, mm. but holding the space for them to be in the class. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about, you know, how how are you making good in the world? And, and I started with myself. Um, and and I do think that I think of it like rings on a tree of, you know, I have my support systems 
mm-hmm. who help me and feel contentment and joy. And I, I feel so much contentment and joy being a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have conversations with folks. So I'm a full-time non-tenure track faculty member. And so I'm teaching faculty. I'm on renewable contracts. Mm-hmm. And I have conversations with folks who, when they hear that, they think like, I must be miserable. You know, I must, I must want something else. I must be ready to move to wherever to get the PhD and then wherever else for the tenure track job. And, you know, that I must just be gearing up for that. And and the truth is that I'm not, I like this place. I like this job. I like what I do. I, I like all of it. And so I feel this Mm -hmm. very deep contentment with my work. Um, And, and every now and then I see a student who I can see developing joy and contentment and pride with their work in my class or beyond my class, or, you know, they get published in the student uh, magazine with a paper they wrote in my class or, or something like that. And to me, that's when I feel like what I'm doing is working. When right. I see a student who's engaging with their own ideas in a way that makes them feel proud. Yes. But more than that makes them feel that they have reached some sort of, contentment with their own voice. And that's the most powerful thing to me. And mm-hmm. I really do think that that's the work of, of almost everything I do. Uh, it's yeah. just the same thing over and over. Um, yeah. And the funny thing is when like, right. I think that's actually the work of sustainability, right? Like when I think about sustainability, it is thinking about like refer, I mean, right. Given my training as a philosopher, I refer back to like, right. Like Plato and the Republic and like talking about like the, the good polis, Right. Like, what's the sort of world do we have where people can like be most self actualized, be the most well, the most sort of happy? Um, and, and, and I, I think that's yes. So I agree. I, I mean, I, I, I have a similar experience when I think about my work, uh, that it is, uh, essentially me trying to do the same thing, which is exploring how to like make the world such that people can be happier, uh, in ways that don't make it harder for other people and like, non-people to be happy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that extends into so much, like just all, all of the things I think can, can come back to that sort of very basic concept of how, how can we make people more content and it's not make other people less content. And that seems to be like the grand project of our time is sort Mm -hmm. of figuring out um, how, how to do that in our, our personal lives and our professional lives and our, sort of politic and, and economy. And, you know, I, I don't think um, one composition class is going to change the world, but I do think it can make a change as part of a greater, you know, wave of change making. And I think we can only control what we can control. So, you know, us doing what we can in our lives, I think is enough. No, I, I agree. I, I do think like that's one of the things that those of us working in higher ed are really poised to do, right? Like to think about how we can use our institution to liberate, right? To to, mm-hmm. to help people be able to like uh, pursue their contentment or happiness um, in a way that I think it's harder to do in other other jobs. Yeah, yeah. I think that when you're like, I so I used to live in Charlotte, which is just a huge bank town. Yeah, and. Um, you know, I think about my friends there who, you know, 
will often use their much larger than my salaries in order to, you know, donate to various causes or, you know, make change in that way. But Mm -hmm. I do think in their day-to-day life, like entering numbers into an Excel spreadsheet to make the Koch brothers more money. I don't think that there's a whole lot of wiggle room in their, their ability to enact change in the way that they do their job. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the money that they make doing that can, can go pretty far, but Mm -hmm. um, I do think in higher ed, we, we have this unique position to, make make a difference in the lives of of people um and also in our institutions you know especially Mm if you're in an institution with uh good shared governance or a smaller institution um i think that there's a lot that you can do that you know you might not even know how big of the impact the change will be Mm -hmm. yeah I, i agree i i think it's really easy to be within uh higher ed and get cynical, which I, I see happen quite a lot where folks right, get burnt out by sort of trying to make change and then like meeting resistance to change. But I, I think, you know, uh, at the risk of being toxically positive, it, it feels, it really does feel to me that like uh, when it comes to doing better in the world, institutions of higher education, while definitely not perfect and, often kind of bad is still in many ways better than other places, right? There's, there is more reception to like change than in other places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, you know, my dad's a factory worker and mm-hmm. when I try to talk to folks who are, you know, really struggling in higher education and our full-time, you know, tenured or tenure track, especially, I really have a hard time um, because there are things that materially we have and that our time in our bodies mm-hmm. and our attention um, can be directed in ways that I don't, I, I, I do think sometimes we lose the forest for the trees a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't say that to negate anyone's burnout or to to negate anyone's like overwork or underpaid because Lord knows most of us are overworked and underpaid. Mm -hmm. Um, But there, there is something about teaching and research and publishing and engaging with these big ideas that does have, you know, the ability to enact change in ways is that as part of our job, as part of how we get money Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of other people just don't have access to, being able to even have the time or energy to talk about or think about these things or enact change via their work uh, in general. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I I try to, I I stay out of a lot of conversations um, just because I, yeah, I don't want to be accused of being toxically positive. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about what's wrong with higher education, a lot of thoughts (laughs) about what's wrong with, with teaching, um, especially in, in places where it's not respected or, or not supported. But on the whole, I think, I think it's a pretty cool job mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm glad to be where I am and doing the work that I'm doing. We've reached the end of another episode. As a quick review, we started with Emily's approach to teaching, which centers around trust and being conscientious about how to relate to students in good ways. And we move on to talk about Appalachian studies and the difficulties associated with sharing and exploring the narratives of marginalized groups. And we ended by reflecting on the work of higher ed as a sort of therapy for society. Please join me in the next episode when I'll introduce you to Simone Franco, 
who's a friend and colleague of mine who spends much of his time thinking about how to prepare students to be more effective and mindful about working towards social change. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.